3: KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, alcohol sales around the world skyrocketed during the pandemic, and it seems women in particular have been drinking more. It's amid this rise and renewed concern over alcohol's harms that Edward Slingerland's new book, Drunk, arrives. It actually looks at the role alcohol has played in the advancement of civilization and points to what's possible if more Americans could better manage how and when we drink. What's your relationship with alcohol? Tell us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Not everyone drinks alcohol, but Americans who do were already drinking a lot even before the pandemic. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism found that from the turn of the century to 2017, per capita consumption went up 8 percent and alcohol-related deaths doubled. Now, as study results from this past year start to come in, they suggest that Americans overall have been drinking even more as a result of the pandemic. Edward Slingerland, a philosophy professor at the University of British Columbia, has been looking into why we drink. His new book is Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Welcome to Forum, Edward Slingerland.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: You know. Not everyone in America drinks alcohol, of course, and some even drank less during the pandemic. But consumption is understood to be widespread in this country. And I just was curious, how would you assess Americans'
4: relationship to alcohol? It's super unhealthy. (laughs) It's it's gotten worse. Um, So even pre-pandemic, American drinking practices were uniquely unhealthy. So so we, historically, we've been using alcohol for as long as we've been really doing anything in an organized fashion, but it's always been a communal and ritually controlled activity. So typically in, um, in most traditional societies, you'd never have private access to alcohol. The only time you would drink would be in a public ceremony or public meal, banquet, the drinking was monitored and controlled by someone. So usually someone was in charge of making toasts or passing around the communal alcohol. Mm. So there were were checks on the amount you drank and your drinking was regulated by other people. And even in relatively informal modern societies, if you think of places like the UK, uh, at least people are drinking out in pubs. So you're out in public, You have to order rounds, which slows down your drinking. Uh, People are watching your consumption. There's there's all these ways in which, and there's good data on this uh, ethnographically and experimentally that people regulate their drinking when they're drinking with other people, especially out in public. Uh, What's unique about America is we we tend to drink at home, even pre pandemic, we have, you know, we have drive through liquor stores, you can, you can go to a drive through liquor store and fill up your SUV with cases of vodka and firearm firearms and Twinkies and go home, and have that in your house with you uh, to consume at will. So that's really, that was already unusual. And then of course the the pandemic made it much worse because what little bit of um, drinking out in public with others we were doing came to a halt and and all the evidence suggests that this has been really really unhealthy for people
3: yeah and also i think what you're describing also probably points to why the u.s is unhealthy relationship with it or maybe our habits as you say where there is a lot of drinking alone and so on has has wreaked such havoc here you do devote some time to talking about some of these things and and i would just like to remind our listeners what those are beginning with addiction for example can you talk about that problem here in the u.s
4: well alcohol is a very dangerous substance it's it's very addictive it's it's up there with cocaine and heroin in terms of how physically habit forming it is it of course damages your liver raises your cancer risk. Um, So it's a dangerous substance. Uh, It's probably the case that up to 15% of the human population is genetically prone to alcoholism. So, So people who have a genetic tendency to alcoholism cannot drink safely. Despite the fact that this this is probably worldwide, actual alcoholism rates really vary country to country. And Mm. you see really high rates in countries like the U.S., um, Russia, some northern European countries. And so clearly what's happening is culture is moderating the risk of alcoholism. So the risk is probably the same worldwide, but whether or not you actually become an alcoholic depends on the drinking culture that you're a part of. And American drinking culture, what's sometimes called Northern European drinking culture, is really uniquely unhealthy.
3: The other consequence, of course, as we've seen, is that alcohol consumption in excess can lead to violence against partners or vulnerable people, people who are in positions of power that... um, that it can really lower barriers to aggression um, by folks. And then, as you mentioned, it really just isn't good for our bodies, right? I mean, Mm
4: -hmm. at least on the face of it. On the face of it, yeah. So it's, I mean, alcohol disinhibits, and this is both good and bad. So in, in the book, I spend a significant amount of time talking about the benefits, the functional benefits of alcohol use, because I think those don't get enough attention. So when we when we talk about alcohol, especially I think in the United States, but in general, uh, we, we medicalize it. So we talk about its physiological effects. So there was a, a paper, a really uh, broadly covered paper in the British medical journal Lancet a couple of years ago, that did a massive meta study and they, they concluded there's no zero, the level of safe level of drinking is zero. <laughs> there's no, you know, whatever cholesterol benefits, you just shouldn't drink. Um, but that's looking just at the medical effects of, of drinking. If we, if we talk about the social benefits, the benefits for creativity, things like this, there, there are a lot of positives. But almost all of the, the positive functions of alcohol also have a dark side. They also have a negative side. And this is made much worse by, I call these the twin banes of modernity, are isolation. So the problem I just mentioned of people drinking alone or not drinking in a socially controlled environment, but also distillation. So it's really only relatively recently that we've had access to distilled liquors. And those are so much more wildly powerful than the type of alcohol that we've historically been drinking and that we really, I think, evolved to deal with, that it really should almost be considered a a different drug. Mm. And when you see, you know, pathological uses of alcohol, where alcohol is leading to violence and assaults and things like this, it's almost always, distilled liquor is almost always involved. And so that's that. one of the take home messages of the book is we really need to be careful about dealing with something that's 70, 80, 80, 90% ABV, because we're just not physiologically equipped to handle an alcoholic beverage that strong.
3: Hmm. We're talking with Edward Slingerland, distinguished university scholar and professor of philosophy, at the University of British Columbia. Slingerland is the author of Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. So speaking of evolution and what our bodies um have evolved to do, one of that one of the questions that you are trying to explore in your book is if alcohol is so harmful to us, quote unquote, and to the human body, why has the taste for it persisted so much as we've evolved? And I think that's a really interesting question because I, I don't know that I ever really thought about why humans drink. Um, And so I'm wondering if you could just sort of describe, well, maybe begin by describing some of the theories that were out there before you started writing your book. So for example, the hijack theory and the hangover theory, Can can you describe those?
4: So what we've been told about alcohol is that it's an evolutionary mistake. So it just uh, happens to appeal to us. So the, you know, the basic question motivating the book is why do we like to get drunk? And the, the kind of glib answer to that is, well, because it makes us feel good. Uh, but that's not really answering the question. It's just pushing it back. So, so why does it make us feel good? Or to be more precise, why does evolution allow it to make us feel good? considering how bad it is for us. Usually things that are bad for us, evolution figures out a way to make them feel bad. So we stop doing it. You know, don't, don't stick yourself in the eye with a sharp object. We, no one <laughs> likes doing that. So why do we like to drink alcohol, which is a, you know, it's a neurotoxin. So the, the standard story is that it's either an evolutionary hijack. So in an evolutionary hijack, we have a reward circuit that evolved for very good adaptive reasons. And then we just figure out a way to trigger it for no good reason at all. And so in the beginning of the book, I talk about masturbation as a classic evolutionary hijack. So uh, evolution gives us this reward, the orgasm for doing what it wants us to do. And it's an awesome reward. Right? It's, it's the thing that evolution most directly wants us to do is, is pass on our genes to the next generation. And historically, statistically, orgasms were associated with doing this. Now, humans and, and other species as well have figured out ways to game this system, right? We've figured out that we can get that reward in lots of non-reproductive ways. And we have historically engaged in all sorts of non-reproductive sex. But it's okay because all of that is relatively costless. It's not it, evolution. As long as the costs aren't too high, evolution doesn't care if the system's not perfect. It just wants it to work well enough. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a classic hijack. Uh, a mismatch is when something used to be adaptive in the evolutionary past, but it it no longer is. So the environment's changed in some way, and the classic example of that. So I talk about masturbation and Twinkies in the beginning of the book. So masturbation's right. classic hijack. Twinkies are a classic mismatch. So we we've evolved to love the taste of sugar and fats which is a great adaptation because those were in short supply for almost all of our evolutionary history. And so if you got access to this stuff, you should just eat as much of it as possible when you can. This has only become maladaptive really recently. It's just in modern industrial societies where we have you know easy access to lots and lots of calories that this is a problem. So it's a it's a relatively in this case it's it's costly. So um, junk food's really bad for you. Uh, it's bad for your health, but it's a it's a recent development, and it's still geographically limited. There's still plenty of people in the world who don't have enough to eat and should eat as much sugar and fat when they they encounter it. So that's a that's a mismatch. And so the standard story has been alcohol is one of those two things. It's, it's some sort of evolutionary mistake. But what I argue in the book is that that just can't be the case because the, the, it's an old problem. So unlike junk food, we've been making and drinking alcohol for probably 20,000 years at least. So a really long time. So it's a long-standing problem. Evolution's had plenty of time to worry about it. And it's a really costly one. It's very dangerous for our bodies. And so there's gotta be for this taste for alcohol to stay in our gene pool, there's gotta be something else going on that we haven't been told about, Some, some positive functional benefits.
3: And we'll talk about what else that might be that's going on and right after the break. We're talking with Edward Slingerland about his new book, Drunk, how he sipped, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. Curious about what role alcohol plays in your life? Did your drinking habits change this past year? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. We're talking about the historical, scientific, and artistic evidence for why humans consume alcohol and like to get drunk. The potential benefits of alcohol consumption will be coming up as we discuss more with Edward Slingerland, Distinguished University Scholar and Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. What role does alcohol play in your life? Has it changed? Have you had to change your relationship with it or how you drink at any point? And if you do, did your drinking habits change this past year? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And you can email us, forum at kqed.org. Just before the break, Edward Singleton, you were talking about the hijack theory and why it doesn't seem like the full or accurate story. Can you contrast it with the hangover theory which overlaps in some respects, but it talks more about uh, how it served alcohol may have been uh, something that served an adaptive purpose.
4: So they're they're similar in that they're both mistake theories. Mm. They both think that our taste is a, is a mistake evolutionarily. The, the hijack in the hijack one it's just a, a kind of sinister brain parasite taking over. So we we've figured out some way there's a pleasure circuit in our brain that evolved for other reasons. Alcohol happens to just pick that lock in, the, in our brain and give us a jolt of pleasure. So there's there's never been a good reason for it and there never will be. The the mismatch theory argues that there could have been adaptive reasons in the past. And and there's a variety of these theories. I I walk people through them, and and some of them may play a role. So um, a taste for alcohol may have led us to fruit, to ripe or overripe fruit in the jungle and given us access to these high-calorie packages. Um, so, So that's a possibility. Turning, taking water that's dirty, that's been contaminated, and fermenting it, can sometimes purify it. So it may be the case that drinking beer instead of water has been adaptive in in the past when we haven't had access to clean water. It's also the case that fermenting grains, for instance. So if you're living in an agricultural society and you're stuck with a kind of boring diet of bread and, and, and not much more, uh If you ferment some of that wheat into beer, you get some micronutrients added to it. so the activity of the yeast it's called biological ennoblement, so you get, you get some vitamins in the beer that you wouldn't have in the bread mm. so these are these are all possibilities. Um, the problem is all of these functions could be fulfilled much more easily by things that are not poisonous to us. <laughs> so it doesn't really make sense if you want if you have dirty water, just <laughs> boil it, make some nice tea. Um, so it just, these, these don't hold up under scrutiny.
3: Well, let me go to caller Stu in Davis. Hi, Stu.
2: Hi, how's it going? Uh, kind mm-hmm. of along the same lines, granted, yes, water could have been boiled. Um, but I guess that wasn't the case, you know, in Europe, um, days and days ago. So was it, can you see it almost being like a selective breeding for alcohol tolerance? You know, say someone was able to consume the alcohol as a hydration and get through the day and, get a spouse and make kids and then have kids. And they did the same thing um, based upon alcohol tolerance, which might hmm. explain why some some communities can consume lethal amounts of what would be, you know, consume amounts that would be lethal to another culture that didn't come up through that avenue. And I'll take uh, my answer uh, up here. Stu,
4: thanks. Ted Sutherland? Yeah, it's yeah, a good question. Um, it, the, it's possible, but the issue is that all humans can metabolize alcohol with, with very few exceptions. And so one exception is in East Asia. So um, in coastal, what's now kind of coastal Southeast China, this uh, two gene mutations occurred probably seven to 10,000 years ago that mess with our ability to metabolize alcohol. And so people with this gene complex sometimes called the Asian flushing syndrome uh, can't metabolize alcohol well, and when they drink alcohol they get uh, their face turns red, they uh, get heart palpitations they feel nauseous so there are some small populations subpopulations of humans who can't metabolize alcohol um, but but that's a it's a re- even in Asia it's not universal um, and it's it's found in southeast china it's spread to Japan and Korea a bit but it's still not widespread. And that's puzzling considering the fact that in East Asia, people have been boiling their water to make tea or just to drink boiled water, um, as far as we know, pretty much forever. So, um, yeah, if it was the case that only in Europe people were able to metabolize alcohol, that would make sense. But the ability to do so is pretty universal for human beings.
3: Well, let's talk about, I mean, regardless of which theory or combination, combination of theories basically correctly accounts for our taste, for alcohol, you really do throughout the course of your book talk about how alcohol has led to substantial achievements throughout human history. I mean, to the point where you say we could not have civilization without intoxication. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind walking us through some of the things that uh, you share in the book. And if you'd like, you can, for example, tell us about the Gobekli Tepe um. Archaeological site, uh, because (laughs) I found that really
4: interesting. Yeah, it's a cool site. So, so you could argue that quite literally, we would not have civilization without intoxication, in this sense. So again, very similar to the evolutionary mistake story about why we like to drink alcohol. There's a mistake theory about why we have alcohol. So the standard story, the one that I was always taught was that we got agriculture first we started growing grains and then at some point we noticed that if we left our sourdough starter out for too long it started to ferment and then someone you know whatever someone thought hey let's taste it and it tasted okay and so again as a byproduct of agriculture we got alcohol but sites like gobekli tepe and other sites in the fertile crescent tell a very different story. So so in the f- 1950s or so, archeologists started arguing for what's sometimes known as the beer before bread hypothesis, which is that, and it seems to be the case, that hunter-gatherers were making beer and consuming beer in a communal setting long before we had agriculture. And so at Gobekli Tepe, we have hunter-gatherers coming together. This is, pr- that site's probably 12, 10,000 years old. Wow. Uh, They were coming together. They were building these massive monumental sites. So the site is kind of like Stonehenge, these enormous uh, pillars carved with animal forms. Uh, They were doing some sort of ritual there. And then they were having feasts. So we have all these animal bones left. It's clear they were coming together and feasting and then drinking large quantities of some liquid. And we don't, so we have these big vats. We don't know what it was. We don't have direct chemical evidence that they were brewing beer there, but it's it's a good bet that they were, and possibly beer uh, combined with hallucinogens. And we know that, that people were making beer in the region at the time. So it looks like hunter gatherers actually were motivated to settle down and to start cultivating grain, making it more productive in order to make better beer and more beer, not to make bread. And then it's it's actually bread that was kind of an accident. You know, they woke up the next morning and they were hungry and they were like, well, maybe we could bake this stuff too. Um, and you see this in other parts of the world as well. So corn or maize was domesticated in South America. The archeologists point out that the ancient, the wild ancestor of maize, which is called Teosinte, actually makes very bad grain. So if your goal was to make tortillas you would not notice this plant because it doesn't make very good grain. What it does make is really good beer. So they make an alcoholic beverage called chicha to this day out of maize. Uh, And so it's arguably the case that they started cultivating teosinte because they were making chicha, this alcoholic beverage out of it. And it's only later as the grains got larger and more productive, it started to be useful for, for making tortillas and other grain products. And so... In that sense, the, the drive for intoxication is actually what caused people to settle down and create civilization in the first place.
3: Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Michael in Boston. Hi, Michael.
2: Hi. Uh, maybe it's because I'm in New England, but I'll point out that civilization seems to require a fair amount of repression of the self, of creativity, of individuality, and also in a lot of cases of sexuality, but on the other hand, it needs all of those things too. So, so alcohol, I think, in some ways provides a safety valve um, that allows, that helps some people be creative even though they've been taught not to be for most of their lives. And I, I know, for example, that... Uh, Orthodox Judaism is incredibly sexually puritanical, but you were encouraged to get drunk at weddings, especially the bride and groom, and because uh, Orthodox Judaism is very interested in there being more Jews. Uh,
3: Michael, thanks. I, I mean, as I'm listening to him talking about alcohol as a salve for things, I, I wonder if you could talk about that. Re- I wonder if that is has a relationship even to what you're describing at Gobekli Tepe,
4: so one of the functions so if, if alcohol motivated people to settle down in these dense agricultural communities, it also then became an important cultural technology for allowing them to make that transition so so as you point out, uh, living in civilization is a lot it involves a lot of repression. And it involves a lot more repression than we experienced as hunter-gatherers. So as hunter-gatherers, we lived in relatively egalitarian, small-scale bands. We wandered around. We had diverse diets. We were challenged intellectually by things, by the challenges of getting enough food. Uh, settling down, being a worker in on the pyramids in ancient Egypt, is a much crappier existence. It's more stressful. You're um, you're being forced to work at something that's repetitive and not pleasant. Uh, you're being forced to live in close quarters with other people who are, you're not related to, uh, which is not normal for a primate to do. And so clearly one of the functions of alcohol is to help reduce anxiety, to raise mood. So it's a salve to the Two primates who are having trouble rubbing along with one another in large-scale societies, and then, and then, of course, cultures use it also as a tool for selective disinhibition when it's useful for them.
3: Um, and some of the folks weren't workers, but they were enslaved too, right? I
4: mean, sure, yeah, was... but they have to—they have to be able to live <laughs> they have to be able to tolerate that condition and that's that's arguably one of the things that um, alcohol was doing i mean this is kind of a depressing function of alcohol but it clearly i think it's not unrelated to the way people use alcohol today at the end of a long workday.
3: yeah you know, well uh, yeah. well along those lines i mean jared asks is it possible there's an evolutionary advantage to consuming alcohol in small quantities because it inhibits the fear centers of the brain and confers an advantage to hunter-gatherers. In the same vein, Pete tweets, I'd like to hear more on the brain science of how alcohol can have a positive effect on our creativity. So can you talk a little bit about how those potential benefits also may have driven or um, (laughs) facilitated uh, our, our penchant for drinking, I guess?
4: Well, create, creativity is at the central of my story, uh, center of my story, because humans are completely dependent on creativity in a way no other species is. So we're we're dependent on tools. We need a huge array of tools just to survive and meet our basic needs, and those tools need to be constantly. They need to innovate. So um, the environments change, and we need to change our tool sets to match that even if the environment is relatively stable we have other cultural groups competing with us to exploit the environment and if they do it better than us we're in trouble so we have this humans need to innovate we need to be creative we have a problem though in that the um so the the if you want to talk about a villain a cognitive villain in my story it's the prefrontal cortex So this is a very important part of our brain. It's the last to develop in human beings. It doesn't fully mature until our twenties. And it's the center of what cognitive scientists call executive function or cognitive control. It's what allows us to inhibit our behavior, to inhibit emotions, stay on task, focus on something, delay gratification. So it's a really important thing to have. The problem is it also inhibits creativity. So there's really good evidence that the pfc is the enemy of lateral thinking or or kind of divergent creativity and so one of the functions of alcohol i argue is to is to down regulate or to turn down a couple notches our prefrontal cortex so that we can regain the kind of creativity we have as children so children are much more creative than adults Uh, four-year-olds can solve creative thinking tasks much better than adults can. And if you look at their performance, uh, it declines li- in a linear fashion as we age, mm. which precisely tracks the maturation of the prefrontal cortex. So the stronger your PFC gets, the worse you are at being creative. And so alcohol then is a is a very useful tool for, for two hours or whatever, turning the PFC down a couple notches and making you temporarily like a four-year-old again. Huh.
3: Do you want to talk about when you gave a talk at Google? and at that time, I think you learned about the the bomber peak as well
4: bomber peak? yeah, the the mythical bomber peak. So I was presenting evidence that if you give people alcohol as opposed to a placebo, they do better at creative tasks. And it's the creative ability. I showed a graph where the creative ability seems to peak at about 0.08 b a c. So that's about two two drinks, in. it's about when you should stop driving. So when you when you shouldn't drive anymore, that's when you should start thinking about your next book. <laughs> that's when you're more <laughs> creative. Um, and at the end of the talk, the first uh, question, someone popped their hand up and said, hey, have you ever heard of the Balmer peak? Which I hadn't. And it's possibly apocryphal, but the claim is that Steve Balmer, the former CEO of Microsoft, discovered that his coding ability peaked at some BAC, very narrow BAC level, and then fell off dramatically right after that. And supposedly he would keep himself hooked up to an alcohol IV. So it would drip at just the right rate to keep him at whatever BAC he wanted to be at. Um, And that's almost certainly not true, but um, it, it gets at an important point that alcohol in the right dose enhances creativity. And then, and after the Q&A, they took me on a tour of the campus and the first place they took me was their whiskey room. And so this is where <laughs> so, they go. So they really invested uh, in this idea. <laughs> There's, you know, Google is built, and this is what, this is actually what first made me think about writing this book was seeing that a very successful organization like Google is strategically using alcohol in small amounts to solve problems. So when these coders told me when they hit a wall, they're trying. They're working on a problem. They can't solve it. Uh, instead of just sitting in front of their computers and banging their heads against the wall, they take a break. They go to the whiskey room. They pour themselves a finger of scotch. They sit in some beanbag chairs and they just start talking. And often, that that kind of gentle. So, as alcohol hits their brains, it's turning down their PFC a couple notches. It's allowing regions to communicate that don't normally communicate. And it's also reducing their inhibition. So people will say something that sounds stupid, maybe, but maybe it isn't that stupid. So people are are braver about uh, it's, you know, risk. We have a higher risk tolerance when we're a little bit drunk. And when it comes to throwing ideas around, that's probably a good thing.
3: I'd wondered where the inspiration had come from, because you are a professor that has specialized in Asian philosophy, right? Asian studies.
4: Yes, early Chinese philosophy.
3: Early Chinese philosophy. So the connection to that and drunk, you know, was was interesting to find out, and also to find out that it it seems
4: odd. Yeah, yeah. And I did all my my training. That's why I I was so happy to come on the show. You guys are my my home NPR station from uh, when I lived in the Bay Area. But it's it actually, it's not as weird a jump as it sounds. So the, the early Chinese philosophers that I look at, and I talk about this in my first trade book, it's called Trying Not to Try, wanted to get you into the state of spontaneity that they call uwei, which I, I translate as effortless action. So it's kind of like being in the zone in sports where you mm. you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, you're relaxed, You kind of, everything kind of works out. You're creative, uh, you solve problems, people like you. Um, but they have this problem of how can you try to be spontaneous? How can you try not to try? And one light bulb that went on in my head was maybe cultures use alcohol as a chemical fix for this paradox. Hmm. You can't consciously try not to try, but you can have a couple drinks, and that'll kind of reach into your brain and take the PFC down a couple notches.
3: Edward Slayton's book is Drunk, How We Sipped, Dance, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Curious, based on what we just talked about, listeners, if you have ever experienced greater creativity or, or joy or bonding from drinking, as well as what role alcohol plays in your life. We'll take more of your calls and comments after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
5: We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Edward Slingerland, Distinguished University Scholar and Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia, also the author of Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced and Stumbled, Our Way to Civilization, which really looks at the historical, scientific and artistic evidence for why humans consume alcohol and even the potential benefits of alcohol consumption that Americans have had a harder and harder time uh, benefiting from in part because of our own habits and culture. But we're asking you, our listeners, if you do drink alcohol, did your drinking habits change this past year? How, what role does alcohol play in your life? And if you have experienced some of these benefits of creativity or social cohesion that uh, Slingerland has talked about and uh, You are joining us by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And let me go to Hall in Sea Ranch. Hi, Hall. Thanks for joining us.
0: Hi, good morning. It's an interesting topic. Um, I'm a longtime graphic designer, and one of the things that I've done many of over the last 50 years are calendars. And uh, working way on a calendar project, uh, it's floated through my mind, where do calendars come from? And it also crossed my mind that early man, as a hunter-gatherer, kept moving, but when they discovered that they could grow stuff, then they started paying attention to time. And when they started making uh, beverages like beers, they very likely were keeping track of how long it took for that brew to, to come to uh, maturity. So I think calendars could have come from making beer.
4: What do you think, Edward Slingerland? No, that makes a lot of sense. And see, I've got a place in Walla, just north of you. <laughs> in That's okay. great. I just came from there. <laughs> okay. uh, the... Uh, uh, Clearly, agriculture and and beer and winemaking are going to require an attention to calendar time in a way hunter-gatherers are not as worried. I mean, hunter-gatherers care about seasons, obviously. They're very uh, attentive to when game is around, when things are ripening. But there is something special about when you're actually growing something or you're fermenting something where you're going to need to pay attention to calendar time. So that's, that's not implausible that, that the beginning of civilization involved not just settling down and starting to ferment things, but also needing to keep track of that fermentation.
3: Well, Pete wonders, what is the connection between endorphins and alcohol consumption? When I was training intensely for triathlons, I really tended to quote need that second beer.
4: So uh, alcohol boosts endorphins, it, it boosts serotonin, it boosts endorphins, It's it makes you, that's one of the reasons it makes you feel good. Um, you can get that through intense exercise as well. So I do talk in the book about other ways that cultures can give you that. So one of the functions of alcohol is to make people feel good so that they'll get along better. Uh, we're, we're having to cooperate with strangers all the time, which is really unusual for primates and we need help. We need some tools to help us do that. And alcohol is a very convenient tool. Uh, You could also do extreme exercise. So I look at evidence that extreme exercise, extreme pain, sleep deprivation, there are a lot of ways you can downregulate the prefrontal cortex, and alcohol is not the only way to do it. And, And it's significant, I think, that religious groups that, for whatever reason, ban alcohol or ban chemical intoxicants entirely end up relying on these two sorts of techniques. So if you think about Pentecostals, they don't drink, but they have these long revival sessions where they sing and they dance and they move in synchrony and start speaking in tongues. That's a way of using your body and using physical activity to get to the same type of cognitive state uh, in, increased endorphins, increased serotonin, reduced PFC, disinhibition, uh, the same kind of state you can get into with a beer or two.
3: Well, let me go to caller Polly
2: in San Rafael. Hi, Polly. Hi. Um, Thank you so much for this topic. It's so interesting. Um, During COVID, uh, everyone in my family was kind of drinking a little bit more, um, and even to the point of feeling like we were drinking too much. But without speaking to each other about it, my daughter-in-law in Portland, my daughter in New York, and I all completely quit drinking on January 1st. We didn't, you know, it was kind of a dry January. We didn't say anything. It's now June. None of us are drinking still. And we feel so much better. You know, we feel much healthier and aware. And it's just been the most wonderful thing. But it's so funny that, you know, I wonder if COVID um, allowed us to drink too much, and then we just individually, intellectually decided that wasn't good for us. Or what? What makes that happen? I guess is my question. How? How do we collectively? And is that a trend to collectively quit drinking? Hmm. Polly, thanks.
4: That's that's really interesting. It's, I think that COVID drinking brought to the surface some worrying tendencies that we already had. So um, I think for people who maybe were already worried about their drinking level, maybe not consciously, um, the the wild uptick in consumption that happened once we were in lockdowns was a wake up call. So um, this alcohol, I argue in the book that over historical time, alcohol has been beneficial. It's been a useful cultural tool for human beings. I'd also argue that the jury's out today because of these new dangers. Uh, distilled liquors are so much more dangerous than the, the type of beverages we had access to in the past. And these dangers of isolation, of drinking alone, we don't ritually regulate alcohol in the same way we, do, we used to. And so in the last chapter, I talk about kind of where can we go from here? And, and for a lot of people, that's, that answer is a post-alcohol lifestyle. There are ways in which you can get some of the effects of, of alcohol in social situations without using alcohol. Um, you could dance and sing and do things. Um, so I do think that COVID, COVID has really highlighted the the dark sides of alcohol and made clear to people what the costs are. And that may, in obviously in your case, it's resulted in a decision to just not have it be part of your life anymore.
3: Yeah. Polly, thanks for sharing that story. And and similarly, Fred writes, I stopped doing all chemicals during COVID as I noticed shopping carts around me full of wine and beer. I became keenly aware of the complications that could arise from self-medicating and isolation. My relationship with alcohol has always been complex, though I've managed as I've gotten older to bring it within some range of normalcy. A friend turned me on to non-alcoholic beer and I have never looked back. I can enjoy the social aspect of drinking without the drawbacks of destroying my attention span, impaired communication, and hangovers. I think that is so interesting that Fred brings up you know, the uh, the combination and the complications of self-medicating and isolation, because you specifically, as one of your tips, say, don't drink alone. And you talked earlier at the top of the show about how it was sort of regulated socially before before now, like way back when. So could you talk a little bit about why it's so bad to drink alone and how drinking socially can be one way of better managing our alcohol consumption?
4: But when you drink socially, your drinking is regulated by other people. And sometimes it's explicitly, it's typically uh, for, formally regulated. So you can you also be egg gone, but yes. you can be egg gone. Yes. So yeah, so the pathological cultures like kind of you know American fraternities could do the opposite, right? Um, but generally the way it functions is to limit consumption um, or at least to to get everyone on the same page. And even if you think about going to a pub or a bar, you're not conscious of this maybe, but, you know, if you drink your beer really quick and everyone else is still drinking their beers, you usually have to wait to, you know, you order rounds and that's just a, it's kind of a low tech way to to regulate your drinking. Um, I think that uh, this question also points to another interesting way forward, which is getting, har- harnessing the placebo effect. So studies have shown that you can get a lot of the effects of alcohol by giving people uh, placebo drinks, drinks that they think are alcoholic but aren't. And and that's that seems to me something we should explore more. So people who cra- or craving alcohol or want to use alcohol in a social situation but are worried about the health effects or how much they're drinking can use a, a non-alcoholic beer or a virgin cocktail. And it will actually give them some of the same cognitive benefits as an actual alcoholic drink without huh. the cost. The problem is that that only that only works if you drink alcohol occasionally to reinforce the the association. So if we if everyone started drinking uh, placebo drinks, they would they would lose their effectiveness.
3: Well, David writes, I'm interested in why when we're depressed we seek alcohol, even when alcohol is a depressant, and, and I think that that also. One of the things that I was reading in your book was the fact that when you drink alone, you don't get whatever social benefits come, like the joys of, of drinking around other people or having that sort of social bonding experience or just that enhanced mood and so on, that actually drinking alone in many ways just further makes you feel more
4: depressed, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it can reinforce depression when you're doing it alone. It's also complicated because alcohol is not just a depressant. So we often think that, but it's, it's actually really complicated. It's been compared by uh, Stephen Brown, the journalist has called it a pharmacological hand grenade it's doing about 10 different things all at the same time or on different and different points in the inebriation process so it actually the reason people who are depressed drink uh, one of the reasons is it actually is a stimulant and a mood booster at first so on the the ascending arm of intoxication you're getting endorphins you're getting serotonin so you're you're drinking a depressed person's drinking for the same reason they would take Prozac it's it's enhancing your serotonin. The problem is, is it then depresses you. So in the second phase, it tends to, that's when the depressant effects seem to be concentrated. And that's where you can get locked into a really bad cycle of wanting that serotonin hit. So you drink, but then you get more, then the depressive phase of it makes you more depressed. So then you want the serotonin hit again. That's when people can get involved in in Mm. really serious problem drinking.
3: Well, let me go to John in San Francisco. Thanks for waiting, John.
2: Yeah, thank you. What, what a terrific guest. Um, I can't wait to get the book. Uh, since I have a personal interest, I'm a recovering alcoholic, 40 years clean and sober. Mm. And uh, your, your 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 knowledge uh, is more than I get at my AA meetings, which I go to regularly. Um, uh, what I'd like to add to you, you, you didn't mention the Native Americans. They have a, 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 a terrific intolerance for alcohol in San Francisco, anyhow. Did you find that to be true?
4: Uh, Well, it's interesting that North America is one of the few, almost everyone everywhere has used alcohol. There's very few exceptions, and one of those is North America. So the, the Native populations of North America did not use alcohol before contact with Europeans. And that probably has something to, and that probably is related to the fact that, um, they they're so they're not as good at processing alcohol so there are there are some, there's some evidence that native americans don't process alcohol as effectively as populations that have been using alcohol for whatever 15 20,000 years um, but what's interesting as well is that um, in places where they you don't have alcohol some other chemical substance is substituted so in native american uh, cultures they tended to use tobacco and very strong tobacco. So native strains of tobacco are much stronger than what you would get at the corner store now. Um, and usually mixed with hallucinogens. And they would use this this uh, pipe smoking of tobacco in the same way that other cultures use alcohol. So you would use it at treaties. You would that's where this you know this idea of the peace pipe comes from. The Calumet. Um, you would use alco- you would use tobacco to help relax people and downregulate uh, inhibitions when you needed people to get together and, and agree on a treaty or agree, um, agree not to fight about something. So it's interesting that when alcohol is taken out of the picture for whatever reason, some other chemical substance is often substituted in mm. its place.
3: The book is Drunk, How We Sipped, Dance, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Edward Slingerland is our guest, distinguished university scholar and professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, we have a couple comments here. Rachel writes, Being a teacher, I've seen it in part of a very strong alcohol culture. Getting drunk is often treated as the escape from needing to be the adult in the classroom. And there are many teacher programs that center around alcohol and happy hours during the pandemic. In March first in March, I lost my mother, and wine and beer shifted to tequila. By December, my brother died, and I began to develop an ulcer from the amount of hard liquor I'd been using to seek oblivion from the inability to address my losses and the expectation to shoulder the emotional demands of the students. Community can perpetuate drinking, but also serves as a very important support and regulatory aspect in our culture. Rachel, thank you for sharing that, and I'm sorry about those losses that you describe. Let me go to Natasha in Oakland. Hi, Natasha. Thanks. Uh, for joining us, what's well, Hi,
2: head. yes.
1: Um, I am interested in um in if there's any specific um recommendations for each individual, which is obviously kind of unique in their in their chemistry with alcohol and different kinds of alcohol. Um, and I'm wondering, like, how how can is there anything that I can recognize? in terms of um, that creativity that alcohol can help induce within mm. me versus, like, once I go over, you know, once I start to become a little too relaxed about my about my drinking and, um, and then the creativity starts to diminish. Are there any specific indications that people can, can look for in terms of maybe behavior or... Um, or just, I just wonder if there's yeah. any specific
3: recommendations. Yeah, thanks, Natasha. It's, it's a great question. I mean, just in terms of how do we gauge, you know, and <laughs> for, the, for whatever it is that we want to achieve.
4: So uh, one bit of advice would be look at your parents and your grandparents. So, so alcoholism has a strong um, heritable component. So if you have problem drinking in your family that's a warning sign that you may have problems yourself or you may be or you may be vulnerable to problem drinking yourself look at how you're using it are you using it occasionally and strategically or are you leaning on it as a crutch so, so I use it sometimes. Um, actually, I, my proposal for this book was not very good <laughs> for the first 10 versions. Um, and my agent kept telling me, yeah, it's not popping. It's not good. It had all the information, all the data, all the arguments were there. It was just kind of boring. Uh, and I realized I hadn't taken my own advice in the book and I hadn't written any of it drunk. So I, I, um, I was on a business trip and I went down to the hotel bar and had a Negroni and the, the, what's now the first paragraph of the book came to me. Like it really felt as if I was taking dictation, just, it was being some part of my brain was authoring it and just giving it to my conscious brain. Um, and so that can happen. (laughs) But if you you find yourself doing that all the time, like you can't write without alcohol, um, that would be a warning sign. So you need to be able to see that you're using it appropriately and moderately.
3: Well, thanks for the question, Natasha. Thanks for sharing that story, um, Edward Slingerland. And, you know, we have less than a minute. I'm wondering if, you know, in the next... 30 seconds, you can just help us understand why it's important to understand why we drink, what you would like people to to lead with in terms of understanding this examination.
4: So it may be the case that when we uh, look at the costs and benefits of alcohol, we decide the costs are too much and we don't want alcohol in our lives anymore. The problem is all of our public discourse on this and, and because of that, our private discourse on this is, is misinformed. We, we don't know anything about the functional benefits, the creativity benefits, sociality benefits, and we can't make an intelligent decision about whether or not to include alcohol in our professional life, in our organizations, or in our private life unless we have all the data at our disposal. So I don't have a conclusion, I don't tell you you should absolutely use alcohol. (laughs) Um, But when you're making the choice of whether or not to use alcohol, make an intelligent choice and know what all the benefits and costs are.
3: Edward Slingerland, thank you so much for joining us. The book is Drunk. Caroline Smith and Susan Fitton produced today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.